God has only ever had one gospel and one saviour. Now, talk to some Christians, and it has been my experience that some seem to think that the Old Testament and the New Testament are like chalk and cheese. So different from each other, it's ridiculous. The fact of the matter is, they have so much in common, it's ridiculous. Even that great pastor and theologian of the 20th century, William Hendrickson, quotes these simple lines, which people tend to know in one of two ways. Some will know it like this. The, old, the new is in the old contained. The old is in the new explained. Or you might have learned it like this. The new is in the old concealed. The old is in the new revealed. This is really important to grasp. Whilst God's revelation to us in the scriptures does come in two very distinct testaments, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is, as it's sometimes called, the scarlet thread of redemption which runs across every single page from beginning to end. The entire Bible has as its heartbeat the love and the compassion of God and reveals his mercy and grace and forgiveness towards sinners which will be accomplished through the Lord Jesus Christ. But of course, neither do we forget that alongside that, the Bible also reveals God's anger and judgment and condemnation which is already upon every single one of us in our sins and which will remain upon you if you are currently in unbelief concerning this gospel and if you remain in your unbelief concerning this gospel about this Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. All of that is in the Old Testament and Paul is about to powerfully lay it out in front of us line by line and he'll do, he'll do so in a number of places throughout this letter. But he introduces this theme right at the start. So the first thing we need to learn from Paul is this. The gospel does not begin in Matthew chapter 1. It doesn't begin in verses like John 3.16. Let's read carefully what it is that Paul says. He introduces himself, as we saw last week, as a bondservant or a slave of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, and that gospel of God, God promised before, through his prophets, in the Holy Scriptures. This gospel, says Paul, which is the gospel of God, he, that is, God the Father, had promised before. The New Testament is not God deciding to take a different approach or a different path because the old one wasn't working out the way he hoped it would. The New Testament is the fulfillment and the culmination of everything that God has been saying in the Old Testament. The Lord Jesus is not a new character who is suddenly introduced into the storyline by the author to arouse fresh interest or to bring in a new twist to a flagging storyline. Christ has been there from the beginning. 
He's actually been there since before the beginning. Now, if you were a first century Jew, or in fact a Jew of any century, this statement of Paul is earth-shattering. And in fact, even if you're not a Jew, it ought to stop you in your tracks. Everything that Paul is about to teach us about the gospel in this letter, the basis for all of it can be found in the Old Testament. Many details of it perfectly explained and foretold. And one of the things that you'll notice as we proceed through this letter is that as he unpacks gospel truth, Paul will keep taking us not to Matthew or Mark or Luke or John, but to the Old Testament to show us again and again, here is this gospel truth here in Old Testament scripture. Because it's all one storyline, one plan of salvation, one man of salvation. From Genesis 3.15 to the types and shadows found in tabernacle worship to Psalm 22 foretelling of the cross to those great words of Isaiah chapter 7, chapter 9 the Lord himself will give you a sign behold the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel for unto us a child is born unto us a son is given the government will be upon his shoulder and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David, over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice, from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this and in Isaiah, on to the heights of chapter 53. And Paul is going to help us pull all of these threads together and expand for us our understanding of them. And show us that this Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that's been promised. One of the really important things to get hold of here is that this gospel of God was the means of salvation for Old Testament believers as much as it is for anybody else. God does not have two Gospels. He does not have two methods of salvation. He has only one. For Old Testament believers, their, their salvation was by means of this Gospel that was being promised to them. It's coming. But this is your salvation. And for everyone since then, it is by means of that same gospel that we, today, we're in the blessed position of being able to read both the promises in the Old Testament and see the fulfillment of them in Christ in the New. And we'll examine these things as Paul continues in this letter. One of the things that may, may astound some people, even today, is that the Bible teaches that Abraham, that great father of the, the Hebrew nation, Abraham was a sinner saved by grace through faith in 
Christ. Now you'll often hear people talk about Abraham being saved by grace through faith. But you won't often hear them add the words in Christ. But it's the truth. Paul writing to the Galatians in chapter 3. Abraham believed God. It was accounted to him for righteousness. Therefore, know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. And he's going to explain the one method of justification, which is Christ. Preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand. It's there in Galatians 3. Read it. When God said to Abraham, in you all the nations shall be blessed. What was God talking about when he said that to Abraham? He was talking about the gospel of Christ. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. So that's a very deliberate choice of words by the Apostle Paul. He uses the same root Greek word in relation to Abraham in Galatians 3, when he talks about the gospel being preached to Abraham, it's exactly the same as what he uses here in Romans when he talks about the gospel, the good news. You and I are justified by faith, just as Abraham was, but it's not an abstract faith. It's the faith which requires that there is one who must be the object of our faith, Christ. Our faith is not in a logical arrangement of truths and propositions. Our faith is in him of whom those truths speak. Our faith is in him to whom those truths point. Our faith is in Christ. And here in Romans and in Galatians 3, Paul teaches that your faith, if you're a Christian, and Abraham's faith all those thousands of years ago, is one and the same faith. Now, maybe some of you are thinking that I'm stretching it a bit to suggest that Abraham understood anything at all about Christ. But if that's the case... Why did Jesus say this in John chapter 8 at verse 36? Jesus speaking. Your father Abraham, he says to the religious leaders, rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. Well, go away and ponder on that verse. It's John 8:36. But you may be thinking, why does any of this matter? Well, it clearly does. Because Matthew makes a big thing of it at the start of his gospel. Paul's making a big thing of it at the start of his letter. Well, let me give you at least two reasons. Number one, it demonstrates just how sovereign God is in all of this. This has been his plan and his design for the salvation of sinners from the beginning. He knows beforehand every aspect and detail of it. And such is his rule over his creation. Nothing is going to stop it from happening. 
the people, the places, the events that will all be part of this gospel, all of it will take place. So much so that he can confidently foretell in the Old Testament through the mouths of his prophets many of the details which will indeed be revealed in the New Testament and shown to come true. Every single one of those Old Testament prophecies being fulfilled because this is all of God. It really is the gospel of God and he really is God. That's why this matters. And secondly, although there are two testaments, although there is Jew and Gentile, there is and only ever has been one way of salvation. The Lord Jesus Christ was, is, and always will be the way, the truth, and the life. He said, no one comes to the Father except through me. Question, when did that take effect? Could people in the Old Testament come to God the Father outside of Christ, without Christ? When did that statement of Christ begin? No one comes to the Father except through me, Jesus said. That's always been the case. It's never been any different. All through the Old Testament, that was true. Because God is the same yesterday, today, forever. And so as we continue into verses 3 and 4, this is what Paul is impressing upon his readers. This is what he's impressing upon all of us this afternoon. Your salvation, or having no salvation, concerns he who is God's son, Jesus Christ, and what you will decide of him. What will you decide regarding Christ? He's the only way of salvation. There has been no other, nor will there ever be. Secondly, Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise to David in verse 3. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. This gospel is all about the person of Jesus Christ. Without him, there is no gospel. Some of you know the name Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He helpfully put it like this. God, in the Old Testament, gave the law to Moses. But that law was completely independent of Moses. The law did not need Moses. God actually could have chosen anyone he wished to relay the law to the people. He happened to choose Moses. But the law stands on its own without any need of Moses. But the same is not true of Christ and the gospel because Christ is the gospel and the gospel is Christ. You can't say that about Moses and the law in the Old Testament. But it does apply here with the gospel. Christ is the gospel. There is no gospel without him. Yes, the Bible is full of what we call doctrine. And in churches like ours, we make much of doctrine. 
But always remember this. Gospel doctrine is the Bible's explanation of who Jesus is, how and why he came into the world, what he did, what he accomplished, why he did that, and what that means to me. And what it is that he is yet to do. Now getting, getting all of those how and why truths is really important. But it's important so that we correctly know and understand him. Because all of those truths are about him. That's why doctrine is so important. Because they explain Christ. Who is he? Why did he come? Why does that matter to me? You need to know the correct answers to those questions. And that's what Christian doctrine is all about. Which is why you should love the word, not loathe it. But you see, without Christ, all of that doctrine would be useless and worthless. In fact, without Christ, that doctrine wouldn't exist. Because there wouldn't be the one in whom those doctrines speak. The gospel of God concerns his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And God is presenting to you his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And to be gospel people is to concern ourselves with him. And to preach the gospel is to preach him. We don't merely present people with a list of truths. We present people with the Christ of whom those truths speak. We don't merely ask them to believe a set of truths. We ask them and exhort them to believe in and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. To know him, to love him, to follow him who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. Now we looked at this this morning. And we saw that this is the opening point of emphasis for Matthew as he begins to write his gospel account. Some would like to suggest that verses like this, that Jesus who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, some would like to suggest that this is where the existence of Christ actually begins. That he was born and that was the start of him as a person. And that he never existed before then. You'll hear that opinion. Not in churches like this I hope. But you'll hear that said from some. The problem with that view is that there are far too many other scriptures. Which, speaks of, which speak of Christ's existence before he was born. Long before he was born. Jesus was already the second person of the Godhead. Fully God. From eternity past. There's those glorious words which John uses to introduce his gospel account. In the beginning was the word, Christ. The word was with God. The word was God. He was in the beginning with God. How far back in the beginning? All things were made through him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. Oh, that far back? Yes, that far back. And that word became flesh. 
and dwelt among us. John 8, Jesus speaking. It's a little after that other verse that we read from John 8. Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. That was Christ's own testimony of himself. When Jesus is praying in John chapter 17, listen to what he said. Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. And so Paul later in chapter 9 of Romans will say, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, the eternally blessed God. One more in Philippians 2. Because we would always be, very, always be very wary of a doctrine that seemed to be founded on just a single verse. But this is all over the Bible. Philippians 2. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Because he is from eternity past, eternal God. The pre-existence of Christ as the eternal God is clearly taught. He was made flesh, born as a man to die. He continued to be what he's always been, fully God. And at the same time, he became what he'd never, he'd never been before, fully man. The promised seed of Abraham and of David. And he now is one person with two natures, the God-man. And at his birth, he was born, as Matthew declares, of the house and lineage of David, but then again, so too were Mary and Joseph. So were countless others. But under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the apostles are able to affirm that Jesus is the one prophesied and foretold, that he is the seed of David who was promised to David, and of course record so many things about his life which are in full accord with what was written in those prophecies. And then listen to the angel Gabriel, God's own messenger, as recorded by Luke in chapter 1. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. There it is again. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. You see God has one redeemed people. One eternal spiritual kingdom. Christ's church. Which includes Old Testament believers as well. The Lord Jesus Christ is appointed as king over his kingdom, the head of his church, reigning victorious and glorious forever. And this gospel is God's means of entrance into his kingdom, entrance into his church. And to know Christ as savior is to be placed under his lordship as a citizen in this kingdom. And to be in his kingdom is to be received into that which is everlasting, wonderful. Now if these claims concerning Christ are merely assertions that someone is, is claiming, 
things being declared as true, who's to say they're correct? Well, of course, there's the evidence of the New Testament which corroborates the prophecies in the Old. And I may be convinced of the inspiration of Scripture, the truth of these things being said by Paul. But I can also understand the doubts that some people may have. And that's why verse 4 is so important. The evidence by means of his resurrection. That's what Paul says. This Jesus has been declared to be the Son of God with power according to the, the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. When Jesus first came into the world, he did so in great meekness. And for a long time, this baby, this boy, this teenager, this young man, restrained and veiled his awesome deity within his humanness. So that to look at him, well, well, some people I'm sure would have thought, you know, there's something about that lad. But no one would have had a clue that that lad is God. His power and authority was never... Well, it was never put on display for all to see, we might say. Now, surely there were clues and hints. There was that time at the age of 12 when he confounded the religious leaders in Jerusalem with his, his astonishing wisdom. But his full deity was withheld from people. It was veiled. And it's reflected in some of the hymns we sing. So Christmas time, we often sing this one, don't we? Thou who wast rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake becamest poor. No one really realized. Thrones for a manger did surrender, sapphire paved courts for stable floor. Thou who art God beyond all praising, all for love's sake becamest man. Stooping so low, but sinners raising heavenwards by thine eternal plan. As Jesus began his earthly ministry at the age of 30, little by little, his true identity started to be seen. His true identity started to dawn on people. Some started to cry out to him for mercy and for help, addressing him as son of David, as we'll see in Matthew's gospel. Some were starting to ask the question, could this be the promised one? On one occasion, the Holy Spirit will give Peter the eyes to see. You are the Christ. But eventually... Jesus will give full evidence of his true identity and he will give the ultimate declaration by means of his resurrection from the dead. During his life, he had clearly taught that he would lay down his life and take it up again and rise the third day. And God the Spirit, who had been so actively at work in Jesus the man, was at work in his resurrection from the dead. It was a fact witnessed by more than 500 people and so convinced were they, they would were, they were gladly lay, lay down their lives declaring this truth. And as I said last week, it's the necessary qualification of apostleship that they had witnessed the resurrected Christ. What else 
could bring about such a huge transformation in the life of Saul of Tarsus. And now with his saving and atoning work on the cross complete and with his victory over death made clear for all to see, now the Son of God is declared in power. There were those who'd been brought back to the, from the dead by Jesus. But they would die again one day. Jesus has been raised to the power of an endless life. Never more to die. So that we have eternal hope in him. That veiling of his power and glory is no longer required. His work is done. And he is risen. And the world may see and know that he is God. And the one who will forever be the lamb once slain. But who is alive forevermore is reigning over his eternal kingdom and will forever do so. And for the Christian who has believed on him and trusted him and who has died and been raised in him and with him, if that's you, you shall live forever with him because he is the risen Savior. The day is coming when he will return. But the next time Jesus comes, his glory, his power, his dominion, his majesty, his authority will not be veiled. People will see him for who he truly is. And every ear will hear the trumpet sound. And every eye will see him. And every mouth will declare, he is Lord Because the next time he comes, you will be helpless to do anything else. For those who have lived all their life dismissing and rejecting Christ, that day when he comes will be a day of untold misery which will turn into an eternity. Don't be one of them. Right now, you are still in a day of God's grace. And you may know the salvation and the forgiveness of sin that Jesus came into the world to secure for sinners as he gave his life a ransom for many, as we'll be remembering together in a moment. If you will turn from your sins in repentance, if you will put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will discover for yourself the reality of what Paul will declare in verse 16 of this opening chapter of Romans, that this gospel of this Jesus Christ is the power of God to salvation for all who believe. Will you believe that you may know him that you may be saved.